you know, just remember, takeoffs are, are optional, landing is mandatory, but closing is optional, a sale or an exit is mandatory. Let's make them good ones, you know, so, so do your homework before you take off. Welcome back to another episode of Carried Interest, Building Wealth Through Knowledge and Network. We have a, an, an electric episode for you on episode 10. Yes, that's episode 10. We're 10 episodes in. I've got my best co-hosts here, Nate and Jesse, and we're really thankful to have Bill Ham on, uh, an extremely experienced real estate investor over 15 years who started from single family flips, actually used to be a pilot and dropped everything to go into real estate, went from single family flips to now owning a portfolio of a thousand units, owns a property management company, and he really dices up everything from the beginning to where he's scaling now and kind of how he moves his company forward on a day-to-day basis. We're really excited for everyone to tune in for Bill Ham episode 10. Thank you for listening. I'm excited because today we have a great guest. We've got Bill Ham on. Uh, Bill Ham is actually the author of Creative Cash, the complete guide to master lease options and seller financing for investing in real estate. Bill is also the owner operator of Phoenix Residential Group, where he has created a portfolio of over 1,000 units. With 15 years of experience in the industry, Bill has learned creative financing techniques and teaches future real estate investors the art of buy right, manage right, and finance right. Even more impressive that I saw, you know, you acquired 400 units without financing, bank bank financing. So really excited to have you on. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Please, can you you tell us how you got started into real estate just after? Sure. Yeah, the the simple answer is I was a pilot uh, by trade. Came out of uh, school, started flying airplanes, realized that I was way too hyper to sit still at a job, basically. I was a really bad employee, basically. And uh, just figured out that um, friends of mine were, were good real estate and making more money than I was working. So uh, I studied for a while, about a year, reading and doing whatever I could, you know, getting information. And uh, my first deal was a duplex. And I had saved up $10,000 uh, all the money I had in my, in my name and uh, the duplex was cash flow and 300 bucks. And that's what I walked away from a full-time uh, career into real estate. Uh, wow. One duplex, 300 bucks and, and 10 grand. And, uh, just figured it out from there. Was that like a, was that a 10% down an FHA loan? How'd you get that first one done? Uh, actually, oddly enough, hundred percent seller financing for about 120 days. And then I was able to refi into uh, you know the traditional loan. Now, let me, let me go ahead and throw this out for anybody who goes, wait a minute, 120 days. Yeah, that was back in 2005. You know, that was pre-08. So lenders were a lot more lenient back then. Uh, seasoning period wasn't really that big of a deal. So today, don't think you're going to go get seller financing and then flip over into a bank 90 days later. Very unlikely to occur. Uh, it did for me. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying, hey, don't listen to this and think that's you know, something you're going to pull off very often. You're, you're not. Yeah. And, and that's actually a great segue. If you could tell any of the listeners out there, what is seller financing? Cause I work with a lot of investors who creatively use that. And even, you know, on top of that, what is seasoning? What's the seasoning period that banks typically. Absolutely. Work? Yeah. Well, first of all, my first 402 units were done all with some form of creative financing. 
So that's seller financing, lease options, uh, credit cards, uh, lines of credit, debt partners, you know, I mean, there's a whole myriad of, of ways I was getting deals done. And so when I say creative financing, what I mean is I did not go into a bank, qualify for a mortgage, put down 20, 30%, and then buy a property. Um, you know, I refinanced out of a lot of, of those types of creative financing into traditional financing. Mm. I just didn't use them for the initial purchase. And, you know, to answer some of those questions, seller financing is really exactly what it sounds like. The, the owner of the, the asset is going to act as the lender and give you financing on that deal. Again, another carve out here, seller has to have 100% equity to be able to actually give you financing. And that's where a lot of people make a mistake. There's not a lot of sellers out there that actually own property free and clear. When you come across one, then seller financing is a viable option. If not, there are other techniques such as master lease options or lease options, things like that, that we can do if there is debt in place. But um, yeah, that was that's seller financing. Uh, this is a good friend of mine. Uh, that, by the way, is how I got the 100% financing. <clears throat> so to be clear. But uh, yeah, I got financing out of him and then was able to flip over into a long-term loan seasoning period is the catch these days and what that means is basically how long do you have to own a property before you can borrow against that asset without using the original purchase price for valuation so what i mean is like hey if if uh, you know zach you owner finance a property to me and I go into the bank three days later and say, hey, I've had this property owner finance for three days. I'd like to refinance and cash money. It's never going to happen. The, the lender is going to want to see you have owned that building for 12 to 18 months before they're going to let you refinance and pull money out. Could you refinance three days later? Yes, you can. What a lender is going to do is they're going to say, okay, well, since it's been such a short amount of time, we're going to go back to the original purchase price. And, and consider that the value. And so you're really, you're not getting anything accomplished. You're still just putting money down as if you were buying the loan. So if you want to kind of have seller financing and then you know, refinance out, pull money out or, or get into the deal um, you know, with that traditional lender, seasoning period, 12, right. 12 months on a, a minimum. And I would, I would choose for 12 to 18 months these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's great information. Y'all, I'm really curious how, can you talk about how you scaled into 400 plus units Sure. I mean, going from being a full-time pilot to a full-time real estate investor like that, that's not common. So I'd love to no, hear. It I don't recommend it either, by the way. <laughs> I mean, let me throw that out. Don't quit your day job and go around it out with single, no children, 28 years old, no real dad. I mean, let me let me kind of lay out the whole picture here. I don't yeah. want anybody listening going, oh, great, I'm out of <laughs> here. Tell my boss to shove it. No, 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 calm down. Uh, you know, so, so it was the right move for me, but right. it was very risky. And so, you know, again, I kind of thought, young, uh, 28 years old, no kids, no debt, whatever. What's the worst case? Mess this up and go get another job. Big yeah. deal. So just keep that in reality for everybody. But, uh, yeah, which I think that's an amazing mindset to have in the first place. Because as an investor, yeah. I, you're not always going to win, unfortunately. I think right. just in life in general. So that that's a great, great yeah. mindset to have. I'm trying to build yeah. that myself. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and, and going from a duplex up to 400 units was just uh, one one bite at a time, one step at a time. And I did houses for about three years. So I flipped a lot of those, made some capital gains. That's kind of how I lived for a while. And then I started keeping some. I wound up with about a 30 or 30, 40 unit 
rental portfolio of houses, um, all pretty low end, inexpensive, very affordable housing houses. So don't think, you know, big right. mansions or anything like that. They were, they were pretty low end houses, but I had a pile of them. And, uh, and then my first multifamily or, or what I would consider proper multifamily was only nine units. Uh, you know, so it really wasn't this big giant jump from, you know, single family to multifamily. It was nine units. That's, that's like a couple of houses. It's no big deal. Right. The next deal, 20 units, which is not that different than nine units. And the next deal after that was 27 units. Not that much, you know, it was very incremental. I did not go 210, 100. You know, I didn't, I didn't do that. It took some years. It took a lot of hard work and, and I did it incrementally, um, you know, so and then uh, over 15 years, which I've been in the business now for 15 years, I've been over uh, 1100 units, but uh, you know, that, that took a little while. So don't, don't think it's something you're going to go out and do. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, looking back, would you recommend to new investors to, you know, take it slow, go with a couple, what we call it a base hit, right? A single family, yeah. build a small portfolio, get those, I guess, sea yeah. legs under you before you scale up. Absolutely. Yes. I recommend you go as big as you can. You know, a lot of teachers will say, oh, go big or go home or, you know, you want to go big or no, 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 no. That, that's a mistake. You're likely to get hurt as you're pointing out, you know? So I, I say go as big as you can. Well, how big can you go? Well, you can only go as far as your net worth because that's all you can borrow. So, you know, if you, if you're worth a million dollars, then you can do a million dollars worth of real estate. If you're worth 10 million, then you can go borrow 10 million to do so you really kind of have to look at your own net worth. And if not your net worth, the, the, your net worth plus your media partners. So like you three, your partners, maybe, you know, maybe you three would pool your net worth and say, that's collectively what this team is worth. So my, my lesson here is if you want to go bigger, get bigger partners. If you want to go bigger, get a better, bigger team, get a, a bigger group, you know, get uh, higher networked individuals and get some people on the team that have some experience. So it's, it's really about building the team, and that's very likely to be what allows your growth, um, you know, size-wise. <clears throat> you, can, you can stay small, and you can do 100% of the deals, 100% yourself, and no partners, no investors, anything. That's fine. That's just going to take a lot, lot longer. You know, you're going to do smaller properties, and, and your growth will be uh, much slower, but, right. you know, you're going to own all the assets, and you don't have to deal with investors and partners. Great. Or if you want to hurry up and accelerate and, and get on into a larger business, you're going to need partners, investors. Or if you have no money at all whatsoever, you're going to either need my book or partners or, or investors to go to the next level. So, yeah, it's really about your network is, is my ultimate answer. And, you know, I'm curious because one thing I've realized is as a real estate investor, you know, you're a connector and your approach with people and your team is that's what gets deals done and everyone's on that same common mission in that sense. What is your approach? What is your strategy when putting a team together for, let's say that first 20 unit or approaching a seller for seller financing? I mean, do you keep, is it complicated? How do you structure those deals? And then how do you incentivize, let's say in that 20 unit deal to get a team together and actually get that done? Yeah. You, you know, syndicating and bringing a lot of partners on for small deals like that's going to be tough. You know, because it's just not that much money there. There's not that much equity, so it's probably hard to truly go out and syndicate a 20 unit. You know, and uh, getting a private placement memorandum, which can cost you 10 or 12 grand. You know, plus the fees, plus this, plus that, may not make sense on a smaller property. So small stuff, you might want to move more towards like a joint venture, 
where you're working closer with a partner or two and you're not going out and doing this big security and all that kind of stuff. So that's probably what I would recommend for everybody doing smaller deals uh, is, is try and do more of a JV type structure. You know, you can have an attorney help you out with that, but uh, you know, syndicate is probably going to come into larger deals. Uh, but now, as far as creative financing, seller financing, things like that, number one, first thing is don't go look for seller or creative financing. That's a big mistake people make is they go out, they start calling realtors or sellers and they say, hey, you got any seller financing deals? Hey, you got any uh, lease option deals? You look broke. <laughs> you look like you can't close. You look like you got no money. You look like you don't know what you're doing. So don't right. do that. Don't go out and start hitting up people for, for creative financing. What you do you sit down and you analyze the deal just like you are going to analyze any other deal. If the deal works, the numbers work, and you can go to the bank, you get a loan, and put the money down and buy the property, then do it. Right? If for whatever reason that model doesn't work, then let's instead of throwing the deal in the trash and saying, oh, well, walk away, let's say, hold on, let's pull the deal back out, bring out a few creative financing techniques, see if those solve the problem. If not, okay, then let's move on. So one of your other questions, how do we incentivize someone to do it? Well, it's by creating value with the offer. So the, the first step is really to identify a seller that has a problem. And then you figure out what is their problem and how does my offer solve their problem? How can I create value for this seller with a problem-solving offer? Then you go back and you may need to educate the seller on the problem. You know, and this is, this is I'll tell you, this is what I call the ugly baby syndrome. All right. I don't know if you guys are young. Y'all probably don't have kids, right? But you know, basically, I hear you. Me neither. So basically, all parents think their kids are cute, right? There's some ugly people in the world. Somebody was wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somebody was wrong. Somebody's kid was ugly. Well, that's kind of what you have a problem here in real estate. This is what I call the ugly baby syndrome. If a seller has a problem, i.e., their asset is distressed. The numbers don't work. The occupancy's poor. You know, fill in the blank, right? Right. You may need to educate the seller on the fact that their baby is not cute. You know, because what I have found is every seller thinks their property is the best thing since sliced bread. You know what I mean? Just like everyone thinks their kids cute. Everybody thinks their property is just the most awesome in the world. You can't imagine why you're not paying full asking price. But all right. So you might need to go to the seller and say, and say, listen, you've got a problem. Here's the problem. This, this, and this. Why that is a problem is my lender won't give me a loan because of that. Let's just say an easy one, debt service coverage ratio. That's the ratio of net operating income to your bank payment. You know, a lender wants to see a ratio on average of about 1.2 to 1.25, meaning you've got that 25% extra above the net operating income. You know, a, a lender doesn't like deals that are break even. It's too risky for them. Mm -hmm. So if you go and analyze a deal and a seller for their own numbers have a debt service ratio of let's say 1.1, that's that a lender is not likely to give you a loan for that, or they're going to lower the loan to value considerably until that number comes up. That may not work for you. That may be bringing in 40% down payment or something, you know? So what you do is you go back to the seller and you say, okay, ugly baby syndrome. Hey, listen, not being rude here, but you got a problem. Here's the problem. Your property's like this, why that's a problem is I can't go to the bank and get a loan. You see, that's not a me problem. That's an all buyers problem. So it's not unique to me. I'm not a deadbeat. This is what's going to happen if you take the property out of the market. Nobody can get a loan. How do we solve that problem? Well, I have a suggestion. 
that's when your creative financing comes in. You know, you see what I'm doing? I'm going to the seller. I'm saying, hey, I love you. Love the property. Everything's great. I'm awesome. Got a ton of money. But you got a problem. I'm doing it gently. And I'm educating them on the problem. And then I'm explaining why my offer is the solution to that problem, which may be seller financing, a lease option, who knows, partnership. You know, you never know, right? <clears throat> and then you explain to them why that, that solution is the, the fix for the problem and why you are the right person to be making that offer. And that in a nutshell is, is creative financing. And it's a, the, the art, I know that sounds easy, everything I just said, but the, the art of getting this accomplished is deal analysis, knowing how to read uh, financial statements, knowing how to identify problems, and then knowing creative financing well enough to know what tool fits, you know, and to create an offer that gets these deals done. Especially when a realtor is involved, that's a whole nother twist. But uh, yeah, so Bill, I'd, lo I'd love to take that a step further and kind of sure. dig into maybe I guess call it a, a case study of a okay. deal that you that you um, you know thought creative financing was kind of the the one size fit all approach to mm -hmm. to solve both the seller's problem, you know, help you acquire. Um, the asset, which, you know, ultimately um, led you to, to purchasing it and, and kind of hear, you know, that, that story and that progression. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I've done tons of them. I, I'll, you know, the easiest story was 108 units um, apartment complex. That's the largest master lease option I've ever done. Um, and just for your listeners, a master lease option is, is very similar to the single family lease option. It's a, it's a rent to own model, right? You know, I'm going to rent this property from you with the right to buy it someday in the future. And we're going to agree on a price today and we're going to agree for how long I get to buy the property. So it's an exclusivity, right? Basically. Um, so the, the largest lease option I ever did was 108 units and uh, the management company really put the seller in a bad spot. The management company um, was paid, they would, like all good management companies, they would collect rent, pay themselves first, Right? And then they would start paying the bills, the invoices, and whatever there were, there was more invoices than money uh, at the end of the month. They would just take those invoices and throw them in a drawer, start the month over, pay themselves first, then pay the bills, run out of money, throw those in a drawer. Well, the property started getting shut down eventually because the plumber and the carver and the painter and all these people, nobody would come work on this property because they were all owed money. So the management company uh, calls up the owner, who of course is not cash flowing and making any kind of profit, and said, "Oh, by the way, uh, just need you to swing by and drop off a fifty thousand dollar check because that's how negative we've run the operations of this property, and we're getting shut down. So just swing on by and you know hand us fifty grand, and we'll get right back to not cash flowing for you." And uh, you know, so the seller was livid. And uh, you know, long story, that is how. Uh, they, they couldn't sell the asset. He put it on with a realtor because of all this. This is back in 2013. They just were not getting offers. The market had not recovered back then. Um, and so I saw this, did the deal analysis, realized the asset was fine. There really wasn't anything wrong with the property. It was just the management. It was this goofy management company doing these bad operations. So that's when I went in and said, look, I, I can't buy the property because I can't go get a mortgage. What I can do is come in here and I brought a business plan and showed the seller how I was going to straighten out their operations. I said, you know, you basically give me, rent me the property. Let me come in. I'll take care of it. We'll set a purchase price. And, you know, and it was a three-year window and I had three years to buy the property. 
So that was kind of the basics of me getting in and straightening, straightening out a deal that was just an operational problem, really. The asset was fine. Hmm. It's just a distressed seller. He was, the seller was distressed because the management company did. So it's really about finding the person um, as much as the real estate. And Bill, can I ask uh, what kind of margin under basis are you usually getting on those master leases? Um, and for instance, if you know it's a 20 unit property and the market rent is $1,000 a month per unit, um, obviously that's $20,000 a month. What kind of deal are you able to, to break on the master lease? <laughs> Oh, that, that's that's not enough information. Um, it, it's very deal specific, you know, so it's hard to say. Um, my answer might be zero. And the reason, and if you're asking about how much cash flow should I be getting, the answer is, is likely for a little while to be zero for two reasons. One, um, okay, when we do a lease option or match lease option, we have to put down um, a deposit, the option money. All right, and it, it functions the same way as an earnest deposit. If you, you close the option, you exercise the deal, and you buy it from the seller, you apply that option money, <clears throat> excuse me, you apply that to the purchase price. If you don't, and for some reason you forfeit it, don't close the option, that the seller gets to keep the deposit. So one of my tricks is to not put down more money than I believe I can cash flow back in half the option time. So for example, if I've got a three-year option window, what I want to do is, is analyze this deal and say, well, how much cash flow does this property produce a year? And I really don't want to put down more than that number for 1.5 years. Obviously, if I've got three years, that's half, right? So for the first year and a half, even though I'm cash flowing, my technical return might be zero because I'm giving myself back my option money. Well, that does two things. One, that allows for complete free cash flow after I've cash flowed back my option money, number one. Number two, it allows me to exit the deal if I don't feel like closing the option. So the seller keeps the deposit. Yes, so what? I cash flowed it back. So that's why my answer might be nothing in the beginning, number one. Number two, what I like to do with a lot of lease options is to try in seller financing as well, is to try and use the rent and whatever cash flow I can get and maybe even defer a few payments right out of the gate and use that money to fix the property up. So I love it when a property can fix itself up and I don't have to show up with extra money to renovate. So I try to mitigate debt and then just funnel all of the rents and cash and cash flow back into the asset and stabilize itself. So keep in mind, creative financing is not a long-term strategy. It's a trick to go in and take over a property that otherwise just won't qualify for financing and get it up to where it will qualify for financing and then exit the deal, sell it, refinance it, or purchase it, whatever the case. So it's not really something that's meant to be a way to, to build a portfolio for the next 30 years. It's a short-term strategy to get a seller out of a bad situation and, and, and we profit in that process. That's fascinating. And, you know, Bill, just to kind of shift gears from the acquisition and financing side, which I could probably pick your brain for for hours. <laughs> sure. And I might come to you when I have a deal. That hey, I no problem, do. anytime, yeah. <laughs> So uh, in terms of the property management, when did you start um, really going all in the property management, building out that company? How have you done it? And maybe what are some what are some interesting things or questions uh, people should be asking their property managers to make sure that they have a good partner on board? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would first thing I would caution everyone is from the mistake of thinking that property management is free money. And I see that with people that are new to the business hey, I could just set up my own management company and I'll just keep all the management fees. Isn't that great? Whoa, hold on. 
those, those, those managers really earned those fees. You know, I mean, let me explain to you why they charge those fees. It's employees, it's employee management. It has nothing to do with real estate whatsoever. So I think a lot of people sort of make light of how much work property management really is. And, and new people in the business think that this is sort of free money that's just being left out there. They should start a management company, collect all that free money. Not true. So what you got to be careful about is opportunity costs. Right? So what I teach my students is manage, then don't manage, then manage again. In that order. So you might want to go out and manage a few deals in the beginning, small ones, just to learn. A little practice so that you understand the basics of property management. It makes you harder to rip off. It makes it harder for a property management company to take advantage of you if you have some experience. Yeah, but once you get over 10 or 20 units, you're probably just moving into opportunity cost zone there. And that's where you're in that, what we call the teenage years. You know, your, your company's not, not full grown, but it's not a baby either. It's somewhere in the middle, you got the growing pains, you got the pimples, you're wearing all the hats. You know, you're, it's, it's a pain in the ass. That may stop you from going out and buying more real estate because you're over here trying to build a management company. And that's kind of my takeaway. And the advice I give people now is manage in the beginning for a little bit of practice and stop. Wait till you get about 500 units in a city, in a market, then go back and pick up management yourself. Because with that economy of scale, you've already got the portfolio. You can hire some business talent. You can go ahead and hire some people with some resumes and, and the ability to come on and help you build that company. I didn't do that. I started with a duplex and I basically managed everything since day one. And that's what I'm saying. There was a lot of time in the beginning. I saw friends of mine closing deals and I wasn't because I was dealing with employees in a management company. It made me very educated. It made me very solid in my business, but it definitely slowed the growth. So that's kind of what I think I would caution people about. It's questions you should ask, make sure you have the right partner. Um, I would, I would want to see that the management company uh, has assets like mine, but not a lot of them that are way different. So what I'm saying is, if you've got small properties, don't go get that A-class management company that's used to running 200-unit apartment complexes and of 20 units, because they're going to run that 20 units about like they run that 200, which means you're not going to make any money, because they're trying to run big systems on your small property in World War. Yeah. At the same time, don't go get a 200-unit apartment complex and call your local you know, 20-unit house management company to come over here and run that. They won't have the professional systems in place. So it's really about, about matching the company and their asset type to what it is you're trying to buy and manage, making sure all of that's a fit. So that's probably my best advice I can give somebody early on in property management. That's that's excellent advice. You actually touched on something there that I'd love to dive into, which was uh, choose a market, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what market are you in? Are you in? Yep. How did you choose your market? Would you recommend people start out of state? in their backyard yeah oh yeah yes no and all the everything <laughs> in between um yeah so i am in atlanta um i am from macon georgia which is about an hour and a half south of atlanta and that's where i built uh, that 400 unit portfolio middle georgia which is a pretty economically depressed area so i realized that and then moved up to atlanta because it gave me better access to bigger markets more but you know sorry uh, bigger bigger area so that's kind of why i moved in in made my backyard a better backyard. So what I recommend is that you look around and figure out, do you live in a market right now 
where you can really get out and find multifamily assets like you're trying to buy? And if the answer is no, then you need to start looking at other markets. I would recommend you move if you can help it. Now, I understand that's a, that's a tall order, but it's that commitment to your business. If you find yourself in, say, you know, uh, downtown New York, Washington, D.C., you know, South Beach, Miami, you're not buying multifamily in those areas. You know, it's just crazy expensive and there's nothing to buy there anyway. So if you live in one of those areas where you look out your front door and there's just not multifamily you can afford to purchase, yes, you need to pick a different market, one at a distance. Uh, but hold on, here's the catch with this. And this is where everybody makes a mistake. Can you be there in that market quickly? If the realtor calls you up and says, hey, uh, you know, guys, I got a deal. Why don't you swing by tomorrow? We'll grab lunch. We'll look at the deal. If it's a good deal, you like it, you just go ahead and have that deal right now. Are you a thousand miles away from that market? Well, guess who's not a thousand miles away from that market? The locals. Right. You are always competing with the locals. So if you can't have a presence in that market that rivals a local, you're wasting your time. So, so you know, if you live in New York, don't pick Atlanta as your market. Not unless you've got a private jet. You can fly down here very regularly because I'm already here. I'll just go meet the realtor. I'll just do the tour and I'll beat you every time. I'm local, the locals always will. So that's what you really got to consider when choosing a market. Yeah, everybody talks about population growth, job growth, where's everybody moving? Fine. Yeah, but can you have a presence in that market? You know, you could you could pick the greatest real estate market in the whole wide world. You can't get there. You're looking at loop net, and that's about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's not doing you good. Yeah. You'd be better off staying in your hometown uh, in, in building out relationships. Um, you know, than trying to go to a market you can't have a presence in. So when you're in a market, really consider your time and, and uh, expense, time expense, money expense, travel expense. Can you can you be there? You need to be in your market looking at deals once or twice a month. You need to be touring properties two or three times a month in that market. And if the answer is that's absurd, I can never do that, then that's not stop. Don't choose that market. Well, that's my advice. No, that's great. Blunt, straight to the point. I think more people need blunt, straight to the point advice. That's great. That's great. What about, what about deal sourcing? So once you pick your market, right, we've got acquisition, property management, pick your market. How do you source your deals? How did you do it when you were within the single families and now that you've scaled up to larger properties? Yeah, you, you have two ways. You can either go direct contact, you know, that's some sort of mail campaign or reaching out directly to owners or you go through realtors. It's really about it. So what I tell people is if you're trying to look at deals that are under 50 units, this is just a rule of thumb, but sort of under 50 units, I would try and go directly to owners. I would be trying to get that database, um, you know, go out and pay for it or go on the tax assessor side or however you get your database and start trying to reach out to owners directly, either direct mail, text, and however everybody's doing it these days. Reach out to those owners directly. If you're going for 50 units and above, you're pretty much in the commercial realtor space. Um, and I was going to make the joke like, hey, have you ever seen a 200 unit apartment complex with, you know, for sale by owner scribbled on a piece of cardboard and put out by the driveway? No. You know what I mean? Do you ever see 200 units on Craigslist? No. You know what I'm saying? That's not how those assets are sold. So when you're sort of 50 units and above, you're kind of in the commercial realtor world. So depending on what asset we're talking about, under 50, I go directly to the owner. Above 50, broker relationships. You right. want to really be focusing on sourcing uh, relationships with those brokers uh, because that's where you're going to ultimately get those good deals. And that's that's tough. That's difficult. You know, it takes time. Back to my point, can you 
go meet that realtor and do a property tour every time there's a deal for sale. That's how you build relationships. So I would recommend, you know, once a week, you're out meeting some realtor and touring, physically walking around and looking at some asset in your market. Well, again, what if you got to get on an airplane every time you want to look at a property? That doesn't work. The locals will beat you. So those are some tips for, for that. I, uh, realtors are, are largely, especially a multifamily, a, a large source of our uh, deal flow. You know, hmm. And it takes practice. Interesting. And, you know, now now that you run, you actually have multiple companies. I think, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, property management, a holding group. Uh, how, do you, how do you manage those companies from top down? Um, employees. Employees, right? So how employees. do you like, motivate them, right? Great employees. It took yeah. years to get in place. And I treat them like the gold that they are. I give them the responsibility that they deserve to be to run their company and to operate their divisions. Yes, I keep an eye on that, but I don't micromanage. So that's the short answer of how do I do it. That might not be a great answer for your listeners, you know, but that's how I do it. Is, uh, is, is staff. That being said, hold on, there was the other 12 years of me doing every bit of it myself. You just didn't see those years. So it's like, oh, overnight success. No, no, no. I've been out here doing it for a long time. You just didn't see it. You know, so that's why I kind of say those teenage years where you're going to be wearing all the hats and you're you're doing all the things in there. And yeah, I went through the, that time as well, building the management company, all of it. Um, at the peak, I've been upwards of 16 employees. I'm down to 10 or 11 now. I yeah. I was, we sold off a few of the assets uh, over the last couple of years. Interesting. So, Bill, what's one of, I guess, one of or the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome, you know, throughout your time in commercial real estate? Depression. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not going crazy. Uh, yeah. That, one, of the, one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur is knowing that the cavalry is not coming. If, if you lose your cool, you're finished because you're the tip of the spear. There's nobody coming to help you out. You know what I mean? You go crazy. Hey, you're finished. There's nobody to help you out. And, and I've, I've really uh, had some, some difficulties at times. Uh, look, I have a foreclosure, uh, Dean Lou. Uh, I lost 150 grand one afternoon um, in a bad raise. I had 150,000 in earnest money. Uh, one afternoon. So yeah, I've had some some pretty depressing moments and mental recovery from that has probably been the toughest part of the business. It's, it's looks like I tell everybody, you've only got one deal, you must close. That's the six inches between your ears. You can't close that piece of real estate. You're never going to close any other deal out there ever. It's right here. You got to, you got to get the mind right. You ain't got that right. Forget about it, you know? And, and so I've, I've, had failures that I took way too seriously, sat on the sidelines, depressed, feeling sorry for myself, and missed deals and missed market cycle that I really should have snapped out of that mindset and, and said, yeah, but now's the time to buy. I understand I just lost a deal. That sucks. But you know what? The market is, is hot right now. Put your big boy pants on and get back to work. You know, Sometimes I took, I, I took my failures too seriously. So that would be probably my, my big uh, moment would be uh, just, just, hey, look, it's practice. Got to get used to it. Failure's a part of this. And that's just the way it goes. And uh, tough enough, get used to it. That's very real. And you know, you, you teach people, and I'm, I'm hoping anyone who hears this can see the value why 
paying money to learn from somebody like you makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's hey, just look, done. You're, you're going to spend the money with yeah. me or out on the street. This, this business is going to exact its tuition. I promise you it will. Wherever you want to spend that tuition, totally up to you. You want to go do it out in some deals and figure it out. Go crazy. You want to get a, a coach or, or a mentor? I recommend it. Hey, I, I, I'm about 800 grand into my education between mistakes, failures, and paid education, roughly 800 grand. I can save you a few dollars off of that one. <laughs> you won't spend that much with me. I promise you that. But yeah, it, it's, it's, you're going to learn it. You're going to pay it out on the, the, the gauntlet. If you want to call it that, you're going to get out and run that, that gauntlet of business every day, or you're going to talk to someone like me and still make some mistakes, by the way. Yeah, we'll just stop you from making the really bad ones. <laughs> right, yeah. right. A little bit off topic. So you were a pilot. Do you do you fly at all just for fun? I don't. No, I haven't flown in a while. No, no. it's like asking a bus driver, "Hey, you want to go drive a bus <laughs> around for fun?" Nah, I'm good. All right, I've I've done it. You know what I mean? It's like now if you if you rolled up in front of my house with some really sexy airplane, yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's go do barrel rolls in a D five. I am your guy. Let's do it. You know, it's like, hey, let's just go rent a little airplane and puddle around the sky and look at the clouds. I'm good. I did that for a living. Like that. Like not that. Interested, not interested. Now, but give me some. Give me some fun. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll take some around the track. Sure. Give, give me. Give me twenty years. I'll come down in a nice airplane. I'll pick you up. I love it, man. As long as I can. As long as I can roll it over. I don't. I don't. Know. Let's get some fun. I want to go. I want to. I want to. What I want to do. Uh, I want to go run the Utah uh, races. Uh, Red Bull. Pylon racing, that's what I would read that. If I get back into aviation, I'm running pylons at the Red Bull competition. That's all I'm doing. I don't care about flying around and going from here to there. No, man, I want to I run pylons, uh, high-speed uh, yeah. obstacle racing. Yeah, man, that's sexy. I'd love to do that. It's funny. My I, wife I, probably wouldn't agree, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's, most investors I talk to, for some reason, they have, like, this adrenaline, uh, like, mindset to them, right? See, it's like that one investor. Huh? Yeah, I'm not usually that way. I was when I was younger, oh, okay. but uh, yeah, you almost get killed a few times. Very interesting. Yeah, slowly. Yeah, what, yeah. What about what about the business now, Bill? Like, wh where are you looking to? I mean, number one, do you see it scaling to where it is when you when you started, or did it just pro progress naturally? And where do you see it going now? Yeah, great question. I I'm, I'm not a very look forward kind of person, so I'm usually just a wake up and let's make it happen and see where it goes kind of person. So could I have seen it turning into a big company? Yeah, I guess I could back then when it was just maybe good houses. Could I have imagined doing larger apartments and stuff like that? Yes. I couldn't have told you that was definitely my plan and definitely the trajectory. No. Um, and, and where could it go from here? No, I don't know. Uh, I, just, I just keep doing the job. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a big goal-oriented type person. I think largely, we can get way off on a philosophical conversation we probably don't need to have, but I think largely goals are, are crap, largely, usually because people just don't know how to set them properly. So it's not that a goal is a bad thing. It's, it's something that's usually misunderstood and mishandled. So I don't have any three-year goals and five-year goals. I mean, who gives a damn? Look, my goals end on Friday. I'm going to work between now and Friday, and then come Friday, my goals are going to reset for the next week. And I'm going to, so they're what I call discipline goals. What I suggest everybody listening is set yourself up for goals that cannot be achieved and that reset every week. So, for example, look at three deals, underwrite three deals, network twice, meet one realtor. You know what I mean? 
And then come Monday, it all starts over again. And what I've found is if you'll kind of set these goals and run for a seven-day window, uh, you accomplish them and you just repeatedly accomplish them in that seven-day window, your business goes where it's supposed to go and you don't really need three years and five years and all this kind of nonsense because your business goes where it's supposed to go. Oh, and by the way, if you have three-year goals and you're not working today, those three-year goals are worthless again, aren't they? So they're always worthless as far as I can tell if you're, if you're working you go where you're supposed to go. And if you're not working, you can write down all the goals in the world you want and it's gonna be irrelevant. Now, my favorite is like um, vision boards, you know, apologies to anybody that has a vision board, that's some stupid crap. Let me tell you what, go put some stuff on a board and stare at it until it happens, what are you nuts? Why don't you go analyze a deal? Why don't you go call a realtor? Why don't you do something with your time that's actually gonna produce something and staring at visions and, you know, three years and five years ago, I, I met a guy one time and said, oh, I write my goals down every morning. Really? How many times have you been doing that? He's going oh, at least 15, 15 minutes a day. You know how many books you could have read? You know how many realtors you could call? How many deals you could analyze? A lot of wasted time. Have you achieved all these goals? Well, no. Knock it off. Go do some work. You're wasting your time. Don't talk to that. Three, five-year goals, nonsense. Write them down. Stick them in the drawer. Check on them every few years. Go back to work. Get it done by Friday. Awesome. So what do your short-term goals look like on a week-to-week basis for, for both you and your company? Yeah. Uh, yep. So deal analysis is a biggie. Try and source at least three deals a week. Um, try and make too many contacts a week. Keep the networking. Um, we have collection goals and things like that that are very specific properties. So we have uh, uh, occupancy and occupancy goals, uh, collection revenue goals, expense goals. So we have some operational stuff that's just sort of boring and specific actual properties but you know entrepreneurially speaking um it, everybody here should be really focused on deal flow deal analysis and networking those are probably your three biggest things but what i recommend is everybody sit down and, and, and ask yourself what is a successful week in real estate well the answer is different for everybody but whatever the answer is to you then focus on doing that every single week what is a successful week in, in real estate you don't need two weeks three weeks a month just one week just repeat it. That's why I say, hey, your goals don't really need to go out past Friday. Uh, much, much more than Friday, you're wasting your time. You're, you're trying to shoot an arrow over a mountain. You don't know what's over there. No. Just right in front of you. Bill, a question that we tend to ask our, our guests, and I'm very curious what your answer <laughs> well, is. And, and, and I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people in real estate focus on is, is money. Right. Ultimately, money sure, sure. provides some sort of uh, I don't know if drive is the right way to put it, but money motivates. Right. Sure. I, and I think for, for a lot of us, you know, it's that it can be that shiny object. I'm curious for you, Bill, um, what's your relationship with money and, and how has that kind of evolved over time? <laughs> I hate money. I just really can't stand money. You want to know the truth? I hate money. I hate spending it. What a pain in the ass. Wife likes spending it, so that's fine. I like earning it. I just don't like dealing with it. So I just throw it in the pile and ignore it most of the time. Um, I, I am far, far more interested in freedom than money. And a lot of times people think they're one and the same. And, and most often I would argue they're, they're quite the, the opposite. Money is not always freedom, you know. Um, so you got to be careful. You've got to kind of temper your, uh, how to put this, your drive or your ambition with what it is you actually want to obtain. You know, so a lot of people say, oh, I want, I want to be free. 
well, great. Give away all your personal possessions and wander around the world like a monk. You'll be very free, very poor, very free, and it'll be awesome. Oh, no, no, not that kind of freedom. Oh, okay, okay. I'm so, but then you're not free because you're always grinding away at trying to reach this freedom. So I would say really sit down and figure out what's important to you. And, and for me, uh, enjoying myself is far more valuable than money. I'm not the richest guy in the room. Don't try to be. Don't try and close a lot of deals. Don't try and make all the money in the world. I just like screwing off most of the time. You know, I do enough deals to make money. I do enough deals to feed myself. I'm I'm wealthy enough. I don't have children, so I don't have any legacy to worry about. What do I need another dollar for? You know. So I guess here's what I'm trying to say: calculate money through a pain in the ass factor. There you go. Right, so so for every one dollar you're going to earn, it's going to come with one pain in the ass factor, right? One more dollar is one more pain in the ass. Fine. Well, at a point in time, there's the diminishing marginal utility for money, right? If you've got a dollar and that's all you got, pretty valuable to you. If you got a million dollars, one dollar, not valuable. You know, you got a hundred million dollars, one dollars worthless. Yeah, but every time you go to get one, it's going to be a pain in the ass. How much money do you really? Really, you know, maybe you don't need as much money as you thought. Maybe you just need to be comfortable. Maybe you just need to, to kind of get out of the rat race, as they call it, and pay the bills and then enjoy yourself. That's kind of where I'm at. So I'm not out trying to conquer the world anymore. I used to. I grew up. You know, now I'm just trying not to get hurt and enjoy myself uh, day in and day out. Um, so that's wealth to me. You know, uh, and my wealth resides within my skill because I know somebody who's you know, 90 years old and has a million dollars in the bank, I don't consider wealthy because that individual would never live long enough to replace it. And so I, I, I keep my money, I keep all my wealth in the, the bank of skills, let's put it that way. Uh, and that way I can always hunt and kill for a living. You know, I don't have to worry about where my next meal's coming from or cash flow or this, that, the other. I can just walk out the front door and make money. Uh, but I, I never take more than I need. And that's how I keep myself free and comfortable is I don't take more than I need. So I don't typically do business that I don't need to do, but I know that's not a very common point of view. And, I, and I, hey, by the way, anybody listening, I'm a very lazy person. So I really, I really don't like working. I like being very lazy. So if you're a lazy person, this might work out for you. So Bill, what's the, uh, the best piece of advice you got along the way from a mentor or a partner uh, or, or someone um, that, that drove you some success? Ah, okay, well, I would say this then, and I'll, I'll translate this back to real estate and maybe even people that are getting newer into the business um, from aviation, since we can talk about that. Uh, I remember one of my first teachers, my flight instructor, the very first day I went on my solo flight. No, I didn't, I didn't know I was about to go on a solo flight. The guy uh, hops out the airplane. As he's getting out, he looks back at me and says, remember, takeoff, sir, mandatory. No, excuse me, <laughs> takeoff, sir, optional. Landing is mandatory. <laughs> okay, and he walked away, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, man, I'm going to fly airplane. Well, what I thought about, and I thought about that later on, what he was saying is, hey, listen, you have a choice as to whether to put the airplane in the air or not, but once you're in the air, you will put the airplane back in the ground, no choice. So let's do all the homework we can. Let's make sure everything's right before we go. Let's check the weather. Let's do all these things. Well, in business, that's an exit strategy. So my, my translation of that lesson is, hey, the, the business is not about closing real estate. It's about exiting profitably. You know what I mean? So, so do all your homework. Make an exit strategy a part of your original analysis because once you get in that deal, you're going to exit profitably or otherwise. And it, and it brings me back to the age-old saying, um, you make money when you buy. I guess the most 
silly piece of advice I've ever heard in my life. A horrid comment. You know what I mean? This is dumb as can be. Uh, ask anybody that went into foreclosure if they made money when they bought it. They did not. You know what I mean? People make money when they exit profitably. I say everybody thinks it's, oh, it's close the deal, close the deal, close the deal. No, let me see you sell the damn thing. Let me see you exit profitably. Now I'm impressed. You know what I mean? So make sure that the, the way out is, is a part of your way in. You know, just remember, takeoffs are, are optional. Landing's mandatory. A closing is optional. A sale or an exit is mandatory. Let's make them good ones, you know? So, so do your homework before you take off. Or you're, you're just going to get killed. That's, That's amazing, advice. I, there you go. Yeah, I would recommend everyone listen to that twice. I'm, I'm probably going to. Um, you, you know, it's funny, Bill, before you came on, I read your bio. I was curious as to what the real side of real estate is that you teach. It's very clear. And you'd be, an, <laughs> you'd be an awesome coach to have. Like, you're up front. You've been there. You've done it. You've seen yeah. everything, the ups, the downs. So I'm getting, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I see the real side that, that you do teach. Oh, real techniques are only passed on by those who survive. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone well, else got I, wiped out in that last recession. I'm still here. So you know they weren't because I'm still here. It's damn right. And this yeah. is why I wrote the book, Creative Cash. And uh, so you talk about coaching and all that. Well, just look at my book and you can learn how to do all these techniques. Yeah. And, and again, just for anyone listening, that, that book is Creative Cash, The Complete Guide to Master Lease Options and Seller Financing for Investing in Real Estate, which I'm going to have to give it a read because that's uh, it's the different Amazon. side. To yeah, what you I can go to Amazon and get that now. Uh, it's released now. Amazon, Audible, and Kindle, all three versions. And if anybody wants any more information than that, um, we have a, we, it's a Jake and Dino and I have a masterclass on a, a creativeapartmentdeals.com. That's a website, uh, creativeapartmentdeals.com. And you can download our masterclass and get the book. If you want a, a, a full coaching package of information, it's right there for you. Bill, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, being on this show. You, you're the type of person you get to talk to for a while, but we appreciate <laughs> your time. We value it. So thank you. Not a problem. Yeah, hey, you guys, uh, look me up in town. We have to talk real estate all you want. Awesome. And that is today's episode. If any of you current and future investors want us to talk about any specific real estate topics you're interested in or to ask us questions like, Jesse, how do you get your hair to stay so perfect? Nate, what's your favorite shaving cream? Feel free to email us directly at carriedinterestpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's carriedinterestpodcast at gmail.com. I'm telling you, the Google sponsorship is well on its way. Please tune in next time for more real estate knowledge. Thanks for listening to Carried Interest. Peace out and go build some equity.